All right, grab your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of John. If you're here for the first time, we have uh, we've actually been going through the Gospel of John through the whole year. We started in February. Uh, we took a break during Advent, and during our Advent series, we're looking at uh, Christmas stories, the story of Jesus um, from different perspectives. Two weeks ago, we looked at the Christmas story through the eyes of Joseph, and then last week, we looked at the Christmas story through the eyes of Mary, the mother of of Jesus, and today we're going to look at the Christmas story through the eyes of God Himself, and we're going to do that uh, from the unassuming Christmas story that's represented in John chapter one. So we're going to read verses one through five and fourteen together. If you don't have a Bible, there's one down the middle column of seats, just uh, right underneath those people who are sitting in those seats. And if you would like that Bible, just yell down to them and grab it, and you can have that as your own. John chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, and then we'll skip down and read uh, verse 14. Read along with me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this day, this cold December day. We thank You for the changing of the seasons, which reminds us of Your creativity. We thank you, Lord God, for the gathering of your church and for this Christmas season where intently we focus on the coming of Jesus into our world to be one of us. And uh, Lord, today, as we look at the the gospel uh, by the, the gospel writer John in this unassuming way that he begins his gospel, we pray that you would help us to see what God sees when he thinks of uh, of Christmas, of of this time that we celebrate the birth of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, Jesus. And we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have for all of us. And in this, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So everyone loves a good story. And that really has been the, the mantra that we've um, sort of echoed throughout the this Advent season as we've been looking at Christmas stories. And really, Christmas is full of some pretty neat stories. If you think about the the movies that we watch on TV, even some of the cartoons, there's some classic stuff, right? Um, I could name off a few. Do me this. Yell out, like really yell. Yell out your favorite Christmas movie. Just yell it. I didn't hear a word. You say. One more time. There you go. I, I don't know what y'all said. Check it out. I didn't want to know. I, I want you to hear mine. So go way back to the 30s and 40s, right? I mean, that's when we really made classic movies. One of the all-time great movies, Miracle on 34th Street. It's when Santa was Santa was on trial, had to prove that he was Santa Claus, Chris Kringle himself. Classic movie. Uh, then um, probably one of the top 10 movies of any genre that's ever been made, It's a Wonderful Life. And y'all seen that? Some of y'all aren't even old enough to even say those words out loud. It's a wonderful life. A man's at the end of his ropes. He he thinks that his life has been so useless that he wants to commit suicide. In comes his guardian angel, Clark, uh, Clarence. 
rescues him and, and Clarence just unfolds his life for him, just shows him scene after scene of ways that he's impacted other people that he had no clue. It just it's a it's a great movie. You should go Netflix or it's probably gonna be on AMC or or TV or something like that. Um, in the cartoon genre, uh, there's been a whole lot. Of course, I grew up with Rudolph the Red Nose Reindeer and, and Frosty the Snowman and and all of those you know those those kinds of things. But but the the two best of the best, the Grinch who stole Christmas. Um, there was a time in my life that I could have. Uh, rehearsed every single word in that cartoon and sang all the songs. You're a mean one, <laughs> Mr. Grinch. I, I mean, I could actually sing that song for you. Um, this was a special year for Peanuts, the Peanuts franchise. Um, I mean, think about how long that Charlie Brown has been around. And Charlie Brown Christmas is, is actually my very favorite Christmas cartoon. Uh, Charlie Brown Christmas hit 50 years old this year. Um, and so three generations of Americans have, of, of people in the world, have enjoyed Charlie Brown. But here it is. Uh, if I had to give you my top three, top three of the best Christmas movies ever, uh, and really these are so close, I can't even separate them. The first would be Home Alone. Home Alone one and two, I, I can't get into three. And was there a fourth one? Um, our, our family watches Home Alone but primarily because of my daughter Zoe. If, if we're having family night on a Friday and, and we, we give them the option, her the option of picking a movie, she's going to pick Home Alone. And the thing about Home Alone is, I mean, you got Macaulay Culkin at his best because as he grew up, he, his life didn't pan out too well, did it? <laughs> so you got him at his best when he's young, and it's just such a fun fun movie. Um, second, I would say uh, Elf. And, I mean, Elf is like it's like, it's on TV every day, all day now. Will Ferrell is like the funniest dude um, that God has ever made. Um, my all-time favorite um, is actually Christmas Vacation. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Uh, you got Chevy Chase. I just, I just identify with that movie in so many ways, from the, from the decorations to the dysfunction of family to just like all the crazy stuff. That happens, and, and and you know, and it has a, a redeeming kind of an end. Um, what's common in all of these all these Christmas stories? I think a lot of things are common. I think that they're kind of old-fashioned. They have old-fashioned sentiment. They have old-fashioned values. All, all I mean, all of the ones that I that I call my favorites aren't necessarily Christian movies or cartoons. They aren't necessarily, you know, pumping up God and Jesus, but they do have a sense of, uh, of, of, of value, that there's value in the family and of tradition, and we can see that coming to, coming to life in all these pictures. I think uh, when we watch these movies and cartoons, we get a little bit of the familiar. Uh, they help us make traditions, don't they? It, it, many of these movies have become a part of our tradition. We see the things in the, the story of these, these movies and it's things that we've experienced in our own families, in our own lives. Um, I think what most of them do, though, is they just welcome in the Christmas spirit. For our family, the Christmas season really hadn't started if we haven't watched uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. I mean, that's, that's when we start our Christmas. And so in the likes of, of those stories, our Advent series has been to look through, uh, look at the story of Christmas from several 
vantage points from several points of view. Two weeks ago, we started with Joseph. Uh, then last week, we looked at Mary. And today, we're going to look at the point of view of, of God uh, through the eyes of God himself. Naturally, as we think about Christmas, we, I mean, we almost always start in Matthew and Luke, don't we? Because those two uh, gospel narratives give us the most detail about the, the birth of Jesus. Uh, Matthew writes from a Jewish audience, just to give you a little bit of review. Matthew writes uh, to a Jewish audience, and he's giving a lot of attention to the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. And so uh, what Matthew does is he opens up with a, a genealogy that connects Jesus to uh, two central Bible characters, Abraham and David. And he shows how Jesus has come uh, and how he's connected to both of those central Bible figures. Uh, Matthew's account tells us that an angel visits Joseph to tell him uh, of a virgin conception. And that, of course, is in accordance with scripture that was prophesied by Isaiah. Uh, Matthew tells us that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem of Judea. That was in accordance with uh, a, a prophecy by uh, the prophet Micah. Matthew tells us King Herod is going to massacre innocent babies in a plot to destroy Jesus. He tells us of Jesus, uh, of, of John the Baptist's role as a forerunner to Jesus. And he, I mean, uh, really, all of Matthew, not just as it singles out Jesus and his birth, but all of Matthew really is uh, Matthew trying to help Jews uh, come to grips with Jesus, who was Jewish, but also who was prophesied of in the Old Testament. All that's presented in Matthew is as uh, is seen as a fulfillment of specific Old Testament prophecies. Matthew Gospels, Matthew's gospel helps us to understand that every word of the Old Testament points to Jesus. And so when we look at Matthew's gospel, what we have to what we have to understand, what we can assume from his writing is what he's saying is the Christmas story doesn't necessarily begin in Bethlehem. Uh, Israel had been promised a Messiah long time ago uh, before Bethlehem was even thought about. And so turn to Luke's gospel and Luke really does the same thing. Luke addresses a Gentile audience. Luke is a doctor, a non-Jew, and he is basically paid to go and investigate the, the things um, about Jesus and, and him coming, his life, his death, his resurrection. And Luke begins with the anticipation of the birth of of, of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. And then he moves on and tells us about the virgin conception of Jesus. Luke gives us the most detail about Jesus' birth. In fact, Luke gives us uh, a picture of Jesus uh, in his humanity, the, the God who became man. He tells us about the angel Gabriel visiting Mary, baby Jesus uh, being born in the most humble of circumstances, outside, among animals, when he was born, put in a a horse trough. Luke tells us about the lowly shepherds that were the first ones, the first outsiders other than Mary and, and Joseph who got to welcome this baby and of a host of angels that came and sang a song to, to Jesus. And then Luke goes beyond the birth of Jesus and he tells us about two prophetic figures, someone named uh, an old man by the name of Simeon and an old woman who, um, who had gotten married and then was a widower for most of her life and spent all of her days uh, praying and worshiping God in the, in the synagogue. And he says uh, that, Jesus, that Joseph and Mary brings Jesus to the temple after he had been circumcised, only after he had lived about eight days old. And both Simeon and Anna 
believing that God was going to show them the, the, the salvation of Israel in person before they died, they come in with Jesus and there it is. They see it. They see their Lord Christ. They see the one that's the, the prophesied Davidic Messiah. They see Jesus, the one that's going to save all of Israel from their sins. And so not just in Matthew, but in Luke as well, we see that Bethlehem and, and even Jerusalem is it's not necessarily uh, the place where the Christmas story starts. And so with that as a backdrop, if if where we normally go to find where Christmas starts, to, to find out all the details about the Christmas story, if it's not necessarily at Bethlehem and in Matthew and Luke's gospel, where does the Christmas story start? That's the question. That's the question we want to ask and answer ourselves today as we look at the Christmas story through the eyes of God. Where does the Christmas story begin? And this is what we read in, in John's gospel. Verse one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Interesting way to begin uh, a, a narrative about Jesus. But this is what John is doing. John John differs from other gospels in, in many ways, as we've seen over the last year. But uh, among them, John differs in the manner in which he begins the account of Jesus. John doesn't really begin a birth narrative. He goes way back. I mean, way, way, way back. Uh, like the other gospels, John wants us to understand that Jesus is God made flesh. He's the very God that became truly man. But while Matthew and Luke approach this uh, by explaining the virgin conception of Jesus and recounting the miracles that happened to bring Jesus into the world foretold by the uh, apostles, uh, John gives a theological explanation for Jesus coming into the world. In fact, many would say that John's prologue, verses 1 through 18, is a theological explanation of Christmas. John starts by reminding us uh, that Christmas didn't begin in the Bethlehem manger. Instead, Christmas begins in the beginning. You see those words in, in John 1, 1? Christmas begins in the beginning. And for those of you that know a little bit, a little bit about the Old Testament, uh, those words sound familiar. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse in the Bible um, reads that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so in Genesis, uh, if John is echoing Genesis, which he is, John is placing Jesus where we expect God to be. In the beginning. And I want to emphasize three points. Now, we've we've spent a year going through John. And so I'm not going to. And if you want to actually um, hear what I said when I unpack John one, like go to the Internet and look at that. It was like back in February. All right. But we are going to look at three things. Uh, I want to emphasize three things from uh, these few verses in, in John. So let's look at verse 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And so John teaches that creation was made. As creation was made, Jesus, here designated as the Word, already was. He was already Existing, he he his being was already there, participating in it, even enacting it. Jesus, who John calls the Word, existed before creation. Jesus was not a part of creation; he wasn't created. John teaches that 
Jesus was both with God. And so think about this. If you're with someone, that means you're separate from them. You you there's a familial probably uh, familial and, and there's, uh, a relationship between you and that other person. John says Jesus was with God, but he also says that Jesus was God. And that's a bold statement, because if Jesus was God, what John is saying is Jesus is divine. And if the, the, the implication here is that is that the, the Trinity, we're getting a, a little bit of a concept of, of the Trinity, that God is three in one, three persons, one God. And so John says Jesus was both with God and he was God. The word Jesus was not just divine. He's also the creator of the universe. John writes that this Jesus that I'm presenting to you is is the creator himself. There's not one thing on earth that was made that wasn't made through him. Now, for those of us who live in this day, it's hard for us to fathom that um, that we can't make something. We think that we make things. But this is the way that God makes. God makes out of nothing, right? God just thinks a thought or says words and stuff appears. All the things that we make, even the best of us, we're, re- we're, re- we're remaking. We're recreating. We're taking something that exists, some kind of substance, and we're fashioning it, fashioning it into something else. And so in that sense, everything that was made, that can be made, the, the, the Bible attributes it to being made by Jesus. And and here's what John wants us to do. He wants us to go back into the Old Testament and think about Genesis chapter one, where creation is being unfolded. In Genesis uh, one, three, when when God spoke, he said, and let there be light. I mean, what does that mean? That means that when God said, let there be light, Jesus is the one that brought that light about. Right. When when God says, let us make man in our image, he was speaking to the word, Jesus by his side, Genesis 1, 26. When the psalmist teaches, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, Psalm 33, 6. When the psalmist says that he sent out his word to heal them and deliver them from their destruction, he's talking about the word. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the word. So the New Testament uses all kind of names, all kind of titles to identify Jesus. Son of God, comforter, healer, Son of Man, Messiah, there are others. Um, at Christmas time, we use other words because of the movies and the, the things that we have we've seen that in the way that we uh, attribute titles to Jesus. And most of those come from Scripture, the, the little baby, uh, the little Jesus boy, the Christ child. John doesn't feel the need to use any of those in his gospel. What does John say? John said John uses word. He says Jesus is the word. That's the first thing. The second thing um, that we see in, in these few verses in, in John in terms of uh, the Christmas story is John says Jesus is life and light. Jesus is life and light. Verse four, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. John teaches that in the Christmas story, Jesus, who he's calling the word, came as light into darkness. Um, I love I love Christmas. It's my favorite time of year. Um, I'm not a I, you know I'm not a Grinch. I love that I love that that story. I'm not a Grinch. I like getting presents. 
Um, I like being surprised. I love, you know, the, I love the our kids opening presents. I love all that. Uh, but the, my very first, my very, very favorite part of Christmas is actually decorations. I mean, any of y'all getting the decorations? I, I'm like a decoration guy in our family. Um, I have to pull everybody else into the family, in my family, to help me with decorations. But I usually, I mean, if, even if they aren't, aren't going to help me, I get into it. And so um, we got our first live tree. I mean, Larissa and I have been married 20 years. Our first live, you know, real tree. I, we usually do a fake tree. I grew up with a fake trees. My family, actually, we grew up with, in the 70s, one of those silver trees. And we had this disco light. It was like red, blue, orange, and green. And it, and it turned and it changed to three different colors. So that's, I mean, that's the kind of tree that my family grew up with. But my, my wife's father, uh, he was a pastor, but he was an outdoorsman. Uh, to the core, and they used to go out in the woods with an axe and cut down their own tree. So Larissa grew up with her own tree. So um, short story, um, uh, our fake tree, all the lights, it was a pre-lit tree and all the lights failed. I mean, just like drove me nuts. And so I had a section of lights on up here, section of lights on down at the bottom, nothing in the middle. And so I just threw that joker away. So we got a, a, a live tree. I strung 1,200 lights. It was a huge tree. 1,200 lights on that joker. It was, it's a beautiful tree, I have to admit. And, and so I'm a white light guy. I don't like those color light people. Where are y'all? You like color lights? All right, so I'm not saying you're wrong. But I like, I, actually, our family split. Our family splits. Half of us like color lights. The rest of us are indifferent. But because I'm the decoration guy, we're going to have white lights. So I got 1,200 white lights on this huge tree in our house. It's like, it's like Christmas vacation when, uh, when he comes in and the tree is like too big. And he's like, oh, man, he's like punching through the ceiling. So we had to hack off like the top part of the tree. to get. We really didn't know what we were doing when we got this tree. It's beautiful, though. Come by. Come check it out. So 1,200 white lights, though I digress, on this tree. We got white lights on the buffet table, white lights on the awning. Um, I got icicle lights on the outside of the house. I got another tree outside. I got uh, some garland around the door frame, white lights. And then I- I'm still decorating for Christmas, y'all. So it's like two nights ago, we- I didn't think we had enough lights. I'm competing with my neighbors. <laughs> Get in your car tonight. Come over to Hayfield Farm. Seriously, those jokers are like competing against me. They're trying to make me look bad. <laughs> I'm not going to have it. So I put, I put some more lights out. Uh, on the bushes, white lights. White lights everywhere. Now, okay, so all you colored light people, I'm not saying you're wrong. This is what white lights do for us. They remind us that light shines forth. That's what John is saying here in, the, in this text. Light shines forth. I, I'm making this up. It, it's, no, I'm, I'm not making it up. That's, that's what I think the scripture is saying. Light shines forth. I mean, there's a blue, a green, a red light shine forth like a white light. No. Yeah, yeah. White light chases the darkness away in Jesus' name. Amen. So that's what, that's what John is insinuating here on a serious note. Y'all stop laughing. Get me off. Um, but before John talks about light, he actually talks about life. He's talking about life and light. And uniquely, these two things are connected. John first tells us that Jesus is the source of all life in the universe. Jesus possesses not only life, but life itself is found in him and comes through him. Um, 
If Jesus is the creator, then there's no person alive that doesn't get physical and biological life from Jesus. If I'm true to scripture, what John is talking about here is not necessarily physical and biological life, though. He's talking about spiritual life. And the way that John articulates it, he uses the word eternal. Jesus gives us eternal life. A lot of times we think of eternal life, I'm going to live forever with God in heaven, that kind of thing. And eternal life is that. But John doesn't, he's not fixated on the, the quantity of life. He's fixated on the, the quality of life. And so spiritual life, eternal life for John is, is this. He's saying Jesus gives you a life that God has right now. It's, you don't have to wait till heaven to get it. When you have the life that God gives you, you have it right now and you have it forever. And so that's the life that he's saying Jesus comes and gives us at Christmas. And the connection that that this has to the what he's saying about the word is is that we get this life the life comes to us through the word. It's through God's word that Christ's life comes to us. And that's why it's important for you to read your word. You, you get life from it. Paul says it like this. Um, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. You get faith itself and life when you expose yourself to the word. We're going to actually, uh, we're not going to go into John next week. We're going to actually talk about word and prayer next week as we go into 2016, because I think God is telling us as a church, we need to be more in our word and more about prayer as a church, and as a people. The word is important to you. It's how you get the very life of God. If you want to be flourishing in spiritual life and eternal life, you need to be partaking of the word. John continues. The life in Jesus was the light of men. Uh, This has a creation motif. John is trying to push us back to uh, help us see that Jesus was before the gospel ever came into being. Jesus was in the beginning. And the creation motif is, think about this. What was created first when God created all the things that were created? Okay. Um, actually, first God created the heavens and the earth, right? But Genesis 1-3, God said, let there be light. In a sense, this is what light does. Light enables life. God created light, a greater light to govern the day, the sun, and lesser light to govern the night. And later on, like verse 20 or so, he created stars and all the luminaries. But for whatever reason, God and y'all are scientists, y'all are smart people. God created light to govern the earth so that it would be prepared to in so that the animals and plant life and humanity that he would form in the later days of creation would be able to inhabit the earth. This is what this is what John is is telling us. Jesus comes as life and light so that we can have life on earth, but also have life in him. That's his that's his that's what he's trying to get across to us at Christmas. What else does light do? I mean, light does a lot of stuff. Here's what here's what it says in verse five. The light shines in the darkness. Um, I don't know about you, but when I come into a dark room, one of the first things I do, I feel along the wall. And I, and I, you know, I'm looking for the light switch to, to turn the light on, right? 
So we, we turn the light on in a room so that we can see. Isaiah, prophet Isaiah in chapter 9 verse 2 says, The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And Isaiah is writing to uh, reprobate, rebellious, um, disobedient Israel and telling them, God's going to send you into exile if you don't get your life right. But then he gives them this word of hope. Even though you're rebellious, even though you do the very things God says not to do, God is going to send one who's going to be light in your life. He's going to cause the darkness in you to dissipate. And in a sense, all of us are like Israel. We're, we're all walking in darkness, ignorant about who God is, and we're living in the superstitions of our own life. And John helps us understand Jesus comes to reveal God. So light enables life. We can't have adequate life unless there's light. Um, he says life reveals who God is. Life also guides. Uh, in the Old Testament, God guided Israel by a glory cloud of light during their exodus out of Egypt, all through their time in the desert, and eventually into the promised land. One of my favorite scriptures is Psalm 119. It talks about um, about the word of God, verse 105 in particular, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. Uh, that's a neat verse. What it's saying is like, like you putting a lamp on an end table in your room, and it's going to light one section of your, of your room. It's like you taking your iPhone, turning that little, little app button and shining it down on your feet so that you won't trip in your house as you're walking through and the lights are all off. But it also says that the word is like a lamp on a, on a, uh, a street pole, a street light, so that you can see a broad area. The light, the, the, the light of the word in our lives is local, but it's also broad to help guide our way. And that's what God and his word, that's what Jesus is like to us. Later in John, uh, Jesus will say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so the invitation is this, as we come to faith in Jesus and begin to follow him as disciples. He will be a light to guide you. The last thing that John says about light is that it overcomes darkness. Verse five, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And this reminds us that there really is, there's, there's darkness in our world. There's a battle that rages on around us, particularly John is pointing to us. He doesn't want just want us to see like the world that we live in, although uh, we live in a dark day. I mean, there's a lot of things that go that's going on that reminds us that this is not a, a great world that we have inherited and that will pass, even pass on to, uh, to our, our kids as our legacy. But John wants us to be aware that there's darkness in us. There's a battle that rages in us. And here's the, again, here's the invitation. Jesus comes as light to expose the darkness in us and welcome us into his light. Because what does Jesus' light do? It dispels darkness. All right, so um, John's theology of Christmas. First, he says Jesus is the word. Second, he says Jesus is life and light. And thirdly, thirdly as we skip down to verse 14, he says the word became flesh. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Um, these, these five words, and the word became flesh, uh, in essence, is the, the story of Christmas. 
That, that's what happens when we celebrate Christmas. We're, we're celebrating God coming to earth and putting on our clothes, so to speak. Um, the theological word is incarnation, which is a, a Latin word that means in flesh. That's really what's being articulated or explained in John's words of and the word became flesh. It's basically saying the creator took on creation, which is a crazy thought that the, the, the person, God who created the world, would come and submit himself to be a, a part of the world that he created. If you dwell on that for a little bit, you'll think that, I mean, you'll come to, that's just a ridiculous thought. Not just that, God becomes man. He enters into human life to dwell among us. We looked at Isaiah 7 uh, in the previous two weeks. Isaiah says it this way, that God would impregnate a virgin. She would have a male son. He would be called Emmanuel, God with us. It's, it's the same concept. God is, is he's intertwining all these concepts throughout the pages of Scripture. And here's what I think you should understand. These words convey to us the primary character of God. It's, it's, it's explaining to us who God is. God the Father commissions the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, to, to come to earth, to become human, to dwell with us, to, be, to become like one of us, that he might eventually save us. And Jesus submits to God's plan and he chooses to dwell with us. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's like, I want to live with you. I want to be with you. Again, those are ridiculous words. If you if you're God, um, this is this is likening to a close relationship that you have and and you just love being with that person. And one of the reasons why you love being with that person is is because you just enjoy the relationship. You just want to hang around them, not because of what they can do for you, not because of what they buy for you, not because of what they offer you. You just love the idea of being around that person. And that really is what God is saying by sending Jesus into humanity, the word becoming flesh. This is an incredible, incredibly important statement that John is making in reference to God when he says that God would want to dwell with us, to, to live a kind of life in relationship of intimacy with us. This is what the word made flesh means. It means, it means Jesus is coming to, to tabernacle. Okay, that's, that's like your best friend come, comes and says, hey, I'm coming over, and, and they don't leave. It's like, dang, wow, that, they're, not, they're really not going to leave. And they don't ask for anything. In fact, they say, well, you know what? I, I got my shelter with me. I got, I got a little tent. I'm just going to plop it up right in the living room. And they don't ask for anything else from you. They're just going to live right amongst you. It means to take up residence with you. And, and this is what John is doing. Again, he's pointing us back to the Old Testament. It's, it's hearkening upon the picture where God erected a tent for Israel, actually, erected a tent for God right in the midst of, of their camp. This is God's statement from the Old Testament called, called covenant. And this is the refrain from the Old Testament. God wants to be our God. He wants us to be his people, this perpetual relationship where we can't get rid of him and he doesn't want to get, get rid of us. God will come and dwell with us. And so that's John's theology of Christmas. So let me summarize everything that John is saying in these few verses. John is conveying to us that in the beginning, 
this, this is the story of Christmas, that Christmas doesn't start at Bethlehem or Jerusalem in a manger with Jesus as a baby. The story of Christmas starts before the creation of the world. That's what he wants us to know. That, does that ruin Christmas for any of y'all? It's a little different story, isn't it, to, to think that way? But this is what we see as we think about Christmas in the eyes of God. As we celebrate Christmas and contemplate the, the Christmas story, we have to be very careful not to begin the story singularly in, in Bethlehem or, or Nazareth where Mary and, and Joseph lived and where the angel of the Lord and Gabriel showed up to tell them the message that she would be the mother of the Messiah. We can't start it with the prophets who, uh, who told us to, to be expectant of a, a, a son of man. But we can't we can't begin it when Isaiah talks about the suffering servant or or even of Emmanuel, God with us. The Christmas story begins before the world was created and before humanity was formed. The Christmas story begins before sin entered the world. That's important. And this is why this is important. If we get the Christmas story wrong, we get the gospel wrong. If we get the Christmas story wrong, we get the gospel wrong. And here's the temptation. The temptation is to make the Christmas story to sound like God's plan B. God put Adam and Eve in the garden. He told them to be nice, to, to be in charge of everything. They messed up, so God had to come up with another plan, and it led to Jesus being Jesus coming into the world, uh, living, dying, going to the cross for our sins. And, and that sort of sounds like the, the right story, but that's not the story that the Scripture is unpacking for us. Rather, Christmas is not God's second plan. Here's the plan. Before the creation of the world, God determined to save sinners through the blood of his own son. The grand narrative of the Bible points to this essential truth. God determined to bring glory to himself. That's, that's so important. That really is what the second part of John chapter uh, 114 is getting at. As we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. God is about his own glory. He always has been from the very beginning. What's the way that God brings glory to himself? He's, he, his, he's, he's going to commission his son to go and bring glory to him. Not just at Christmas, not just at Bethlehem coming as a baby, going to the cross, dying for our place and our, uh, for our sin. Way back before we ever thought about in the mind of God, God is always about his own glory. So God determined to bring glory to himself through the salvation of a people redeemed and purchased by his own son, Jesus the Christ. And so we look to Bethlehem. That's, you know, that's the Bible's not lying. That's where God was incarnated. Jesus himself came into humanity that way. And we can't overlook Calvary because that's the place where God, Jesus ultimately glorified God by dying on the cross for our sins. These were essential parts of God's plan from the very beginning. Before the, the cosmos was even thought about, brought into being. But, but, but as Jesus obeyed the will of the Father in creation, this idea that he would come and we would celebrate this Christmas was, was, was thought in the mind of God before creation ever came to be. And so the Christmas story doesn't begin in Bethlehem. 
But it's okay for us to look at Bethlehem as a scene where, where Jesus came on the scene. That Really, Bethlehem is, is one of the most decisive events in the history of our world. Jesus coming into the world. But salvation doesn't start there. The story doesn't start there. The story begins in the eternal purpose of God. This is what John says. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning. That's where the Christmas story starts, at least in God's eyes. John takes us right up to the essence of what happened in Bethlehem. And and this is the words that he says. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And so I'll close with with these few words. What should we see in the Christmas story through God's eyes? We've, we've really done this every week uh, as we've looked at the, the different characters, Joseph, Mary, and, and now God. And so I've got three things for you. These are in no necessary, no numbered order. Um, there are many other things that we could say, but these were the ones that came to my mind. The first thing is, is we see the answer to the question of why Jesus came. This is a sermon in and of itself. Why, why exactly did Jesus come? It's good to contemplate that really at Christmas time. Why do we even have Christmas? And I think the answer is, is this is the this is the Bible story of redemption. Redemption is 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 God ransoming us. He's he's making right all those things that are wrong about us and about the world that we live in. He's writing all the stuff that goes on in our world. He does it by the coming of his son, about him living a perfect life, by him going to the cross. But it, it is, it's initiated uh, right here at Christmas time. At least that's when we think about it. Uh, the question of why Jesus came answers that the age-old question of, of the problem of evil. What do we do with our human sin problem? The, the, the answer the Bible gives us is that God sends his son in the flesh, Jesus, to live the life that we couldn't live, to die the death that we deserve, to go to the cross, die in our place for our sin. And Jesus dies in our place for our sin so that he can save us from that sin. The second thing is we see that God is not a detached, casual observer. And this is a neat thought. God is not a, a God that stands afar off and just peeks in and lets things. I mean, he spins the top and sort of lets it go. That's not how God created the world. God has been intimately involved um, in every step of the way of of creation of the world that he created and of the, the lives of the individuals that he's put into humanity. God doesn't stand aloof from the suffering and pain and the evil that forms the central tension of the, the narrative of the Bible or that makes up all the individual lives that have ever, ever existed on the earth. The God who was born that we celebrate at Christmas, baby Jesus, is the God that, that bleeds, that dies on the cross, that resurrects. He's the God that identifies with our sorrows, as Isaiah said, becoming a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And so at Christmas, what are we celebrating? We're celebrating God coming down. A theological word is condescending. That's like lowering, lowering himself as, as, as low as he possibly could. He lowers himself in the person and the work of Jesus, and he draws himself near to us in all the ways that we need him to. And these aren't the pretty ways. 
He draws himself near to us in our sin and in our grief and in our despair and in our sorrow and in our hate and in our sickness and eventually in our death. He embraces the cross for us. And fortunately, Jesus' cross wasn't the end of it. The cross is really the darkest hour that's, that's ever been experienced on the face of this earth. But, but Jesus resurrects. Evil doesn't have the last word. Three days later, Jesus rises from the tomb. He commissions his disciples. He ascends the throne where he sits until all of his enemies will be subdued under his feet. And, and at Christmas, because we celebrate Advent, we're like giving praise to God because he's come one time. But Advent is all about Jesus, more importantly, coming the second time. He'll, he'll crack the sky. He'll come with a horde of, of angels and heavenly hosts with him. And, and his victory, which is already, been, will be, uh, already won, will be solidified. Jesus opened. I shouldn't say it. I can't say it. He's going to like do some great stuff. I can't tell you what I was thinking. Thirdly, and I'll finish with this. We see God's desire to be with his creation. And this, this warms my heart the most. This is, this is wrapped up in the thought um, of God becoming flesh. And so when Adam, when God created Adam and Eve, can you imagine when it says that Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God in the cool of the day? And they got to, we don't know what they saw. They probably just saw an aberration or just felt the presence of God. No one has seen God and lived, not even Adam and Eve. But they got to walk with God and talk with him in the cool of the day in that perfect environment in, God, in, in the garden. And when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and did what he said not to do, he actually um, he pursued us anyway. And he recreated the opportunity for humanity to dwell with him by it, it encapsulating himself or allowing us to think that he was encapsulated in the tent in the wilderness. And then he and then he allowed Solomon to build this grand temple in the in the promised land. And God filled it with his spirit. In fact, the day they commissioned the temple, God sent his spirit in. And it says that the, the priest couldn't even minister because the presence was so grand. It's epitomized in this phrase that you'll be my people. I'll be your God. And so what all these represent is the presence of God, the presence of the glory of God in their midst. And and that's what Christmas is all about. Jesus comes in the flesh. And this is the true. This is the true glory of God. It's Jesus Christ himself. That's true glory, guys. And that's what we that's what we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate the glory of God in the person of Jesus coming. And we we proclaim him, we trust him, we praise him because he comes to be in the midst of us. That's the essence of Christmas. So I'll conclude with this. Everybody loves a good story. Uh, the Christmas season offers us some all-time classics, but the most classic of all is the oldest story of all. It's the story of God becoming flesh. The story of Jesus is the story of Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for the Christmas season, for the decorations, for the movies, for the cartoons, for the giving and the receiving of gifts, for the great food that we'll eat, for the familiarity of 
of seeing old family and friends that perhaps we haven't seen since the last Christmas or at some other time in the year, of getting to travel to far off places that we haven't gone in a while and being reacquainted with those that we, again, haven't seen in a while. But, but we thank you for all that Christmas represents of, of light and life and love, of joy and peace, the sights and sounds of, of your glory. And so even as we embark this week upon the, festiv- the festivities of, of Christmas, God, we would be remiss if we didn't, in this setting of your people, make much of your glory. Lord, you, at Christmas time, came, birthed through the womb of a woman, in the most humble of circumstances, you came to reveal your glory. And it was a glory that we didn't necessarily recognize, especially if the angels hadn't come and sang a song to you. But God, help us not to miss it now. Help us to see your glory and Jesus himself coming from eternity to earth to be among us, to love us, to live with us, to eventually sacrifice himself for us. Lord, we live for your glory, and it's in light of your glory that we pray in Jesus' name.